0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, your host for today. I'm a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area and I'm excited to be here for today's discussion. Today, we will consult with Dr. Michael Sharanian and Krista Mills, food allergy coordinator on allergies and specifically oral immunotherapy for food allergies. Um, Just a little kind of intro. This is actually something that's near and dear to my heart as I have a son with a food allergy um, and just kind of funny that we actually have a follow-up for our food allergy right after this podcast so you know we may we may see you guys again after this recording so but let's start a little bit and learn or start and learn a little bit my apologies about our guests um, so if you Either one of you can kind of jump in and share first, but share a little bit about how long you've been practicing, how long you've been at Cincinnati Children's, any special interests you might have. And that can be clinically or personally, Which, what else? anything you would like to share.
1: I'm Krista Mills. I'm the food allergy coordinator here at Cincinnati Children's. I started my career in 1993. I graduated from Chapel Hill the year they won the uh, championship for basketball, so that was exciting. (laughs) Um, I've been at Cincinnati Children's for most of my career. I've been here 29 and a half years. I worked in the emergency room for 24 years, and in that role, I did a lot of treating anaphylaxis in this role as a food allergy coordinator and allergy. I've been able to broaden my scope of practice and practice more as a preventative care, um, in this setting that we're in. So never be afraid to change would be my, <laughs> my thing. And, um, one of the hobbies that I really enjoy doing is kayaking. I love being out in nature. That's
0: awesome. That's an interesting, I kind of love that transition too, because I feel like oral immunotherapy has really taken off, you know, in the last five to seven years. So what a cool transition from more treatment to more preventative, just as times change and, you know, as our knowledge changes too. So thank you for sharing. Dr. Sharanian.
2: And I'm Mike I started practicing when i started residency back in 2012 which was here in pediatrics and was here from 2012 to 2015 went up to northwestern for an allergy and immunology fellowship where i started my allergy immunology practicing and graduated from there in 2018 and came back here and have been here since for the last five years and so my research interest in the hospital i focus a lot on eczema and atopic disease development and food allergy development and the the processes that underlie that. And outside of work, I am a big foodie, so I go to quite a bit of restaurants in the city and I'm always looking to see what's new on the Cincinnati food scene.
0: Well, we, we don't want to advertise for anyone, but I'll have to catch, catch you later and, you know, get your restaurant recommendations too. So, well, thank you both. I appreciate that introduction and excited for our talk today. Um, as we mentioned, our conversation is on food allergies and oral immunotherapy. Um, let's just start with maybe sharing, um, and whoever would like to take this question is fine, just a quick overview of what is oral immunotherapy and kind of what does the process involve?
2: So oral immunotherapy is a relatively new treatment option for people in this country. And it's a treatment for food allergies. So the process involves food allergic patients coming in and slowly being exposed to their food allergen with increasingly small amounts of that food over time. This then causes the child or patient to become less reactive to the food allergies and then this process is what we call desensitization. Desensitization then lets these patients tolerate levels of the food equivalent to above or most accidental exposures, giving what we call in clinic something called bite protection. Whereas if they eat a bite of that food, they will have a different or less severe reaction. And again, this just mitigates and helps reduce the risk of reaction or severity of the reaction for most accidental exposures for any given food allergy.
0: Perfect. Um, I've done just a little bit of kind of researching on this, but um, I know there are very specific phases. Um, Anyone want to kind of go through what phases are involved? and then maybe even just timing. What's it look like, you know, if a patient is referred in for oral immunotherapy um, for a physician, or even being a parent? So, you know, I have that kind of double duty here of of both of those. But uh, you know, in some of what I've learned over the last really year, year and a half or so, um, surprised me even as a general pediatrician. I don't think I was quite aware of how intense the process is and what the phases were.
1: Um, So the phases, I I tell everyone, you'll start with a consultation where you'll meet with the provider and really go over the risks and benefits. They'll determine if, you know, you're a good candidate, you'll determine if this is a good process for your, your lifestyle and for what you want for your child and that the goals are being met. Um, the phases, There's. I always explain there's three phases. The first phase is that initial escalation where you come in that first day and we introduce the food that your child is allergic to. As you can imagine there's some anxiety around that because they've been told to avoid their food so we do work very closely with the patient and families and it is a slow build up that day Um, we usually give the doses every 20 minutes and we monitor for any kind of reaction we do this in the office so that we provide a safe environment for them to introduce the food once we have established what is a good dose for them to go home on That's the dose that they will go home on and take every day at home. I tell my patients that it's similar to brushing your teeth if you don't want cavities, patients with food allergies, take their food every day so that they can minimize the risk of their body reacting to it if they accidentally get exposed. Um, The process for that visit too, it's important to remember they always should carry their EpiPen. Even if they are on a small dose, their exposure may be greater than the dose we're currently treating them with and that they need to um, always be well when they're taking their dose at home. Um, If we do have um, people around to help 24 seven on call, um, That we're always there and ready to answer any questions or be there to support them. The second phase is the updosing phase, and that's where they come back to take an increased amount of their food protein. Those visits are much shorter. Um, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but the initial escalation is about a four-hour visit. But after that, the visits are about an hour and a half. Um, And as they come for the visits, they start to build a relationship with the nurses and physicians. And it's kind of neat because the kids really start to connect with our staff and almost look forward to their visits. And so um, there's that rapport that gets built as you have that continuity of care. Um, the increased amount that we give at those visits ranges from 30 to 100%. And they, um, if they tolerate the dose, they get home on the dose that they, they took in the office. If they don't, it's not a, oh, you're done with OIT. You can stay on that dose that you were tolerating and come back and try again the next time. The visits are about every two to four weeks and they take around six to nine months. I tell parents it's a marathon, not a race. And everyone has their own journey. We do individualize their care. So um, it's not like you're out of the program if you don't meet the criteria.
0: It's not a (laughs) one-size-fits-all. No.
1: And then the final phase is maintenance, and that's where they come back, um, and they see their physician about every six months. Once they're in the maintenance phase and they're in the full dose amount, they can have foods that may contain their food allergen, and they also may have foods processed in a facility with their food allergen. So it does open their diet. Um, And then uh, they do come back at one year for a three-dose challenge. And that goes back to what Dr. Srini was saying about the desensitization. We do that challenge to kind of justify that we have desensitized them to a full serving of their food allergen. Great.
2: And and I think the important part about that three-step challenge too is more for the families. We know that our process works. We know that they're going to be desensitized, but really the benefit is to show these families and help them understand that what they've been spending all this time doing and all of the months and all the effort they've put in is, has been working and there is a tangible benefit that they can see.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what specific, for what specific food allergies is OIT currently available at Cincinnati Children's?
1: Um, we currently have protocols for peanut egg and tree nut, but we have providers who offer OIT for all foods. Um, so sesame is a big one that we're seeing on the rise and, um, also milk. So those are some of the the foods that we offer.
0: And for tree nuts, is that all tree nuts? Yes.
1: Well, all except we do, um, well, yeah, all tree nuts, depending on what the provider feels would be beneficial to the child.
2: It's, it's taken by a case by case basis. Gotcha. What level of tree nuts we include in the diet. Yeah. For the OIT.
0: That makes perfect sense. So, um, any data that you could share on just desensitization rates? How successful is OIT after they've, you know, completed the course? You know, even sharing. So, I guess during the course, you know, how successful? percents you have to share, and then maybe after, like maintenance, are there any relapses? Are there any, um, any good data to just show us? And I know this is newer, so we may not yeah. have long-term data on that, but you know, just some basic
1: so on the average, we get about 120 new patients a year that enter our OIT program. Um, with that, um, we started like in 2014 with clinical trials here at Children's and we started our first standardized clinic in 2018. So when you say that it's fairly new, yes, it's fairly new <laughs> in the last five years. So, um, and we we treat, um, right now we currently have about 750 patients in our OIT registry. Um, with some of the data that Dr. Um, Schwartz who, um, does some of the has worked with the peanut oit protocol and some of the data that he's obtained um, is that about 95 percent of our patients has passed this desensitization challenge on the average we have 11 percent of our patients that either drop out or have issues that come up and that's pretty norm compared to the literature um, that's out there about OIT. Some of the biggest things that we've seen, at least when I was looking at what why do patients quit, we see a lot of GI upset, um, and that is common again across the literature. Um, so, Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's
0: helpful. great <laughs> to point out. That's very helpful. It, and as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, as I initially asked the question, I'm thinking more of medical success rate. But some of this, it's such an intense process, it may just be family compliance or appointment compliance, and you know other factors that may play into that rate. Maybe even being a little lower than it actually is if you got perfect compliance. Or you know, you mentioned the side effects, which I had not considered. So that's great information. Thank you.
2: And I think medical success really, again, goes on a case by case basis. One of the big things that we talk about with families when they come in to see the initial consultation with us is what their goals are. And every family will have different goals for what the OIT process is going to end up as. From a standard medical procedure, our goal is always to induce bite tolerance, which gives them that protection to be able to have the food without having as severe of a reaction. But we have a lot of families who do come in who will say, I want to induce tolerance so my kid can eat the food whenever and wherever they want. So we have to manage expectations that that may not occur with most of our families but there are some children who we can have a higher success of that happening so again revisiting what their goals are to make sure that both the patient the family and the provider goals align um, really i think is one of the biggest factors contributing to the medical success that we see for our families
0: that was great too as i'm listening to you guys and just thinking and i hate to be going back to all these personal stories but um my son was just in is 14, but just diagnosed last year with a cashew pistachio allergy. And for us, he doesn't love cashews and pistachios. So, you know, an initial diagnosis, I'm like, well, this isn't a huge deal. We don't really eat them, you know, and now I'm going, Oh, he's going to be a teenager and he's not going to be with me all the time. And how much do I trust him? And so, you know, considering potential OIT for me is more a safety issue. Um, but you're right, I never really considered, You know, some people are, are more, is the goal, we can eat these things, right? And eat them regularly, where that wouldn't necessarily be my goal. Um, so it is very interesting to think just all the different goals, and I think that's so important to, to take into mind.
2: And I would say, Krista, let me know if you think differently, but more of the families who come in with children who are adolescents or young adults, that follows through with their goals is they want that protection when they go out with friends when they go to college when they move out of the home they just want to know that their child is going to be safe and the younger families that come in with the infants and toddlers they're the ones who are pushing for what can we do to get rid of this problem and get rid of the food allergy
0: that makes a lot of sense is there and this may be kind of a funny question but thinking as you know a general pediatrician taking care of kids that come in, you know, even just for their well child checks in my office that have a food allergy, um, one that hopefully I will now know, hey, OIT is available for this. Are there specific, and the answer might be no, because I think we've touched on a little bit of this, but are there specific patients that you would say are more appropriate to be referred for OIT than others? Or is it really just goal-based and otherwise, you know, refer them on if they're interested?
2: Sure, I think that's a, that's a great question. You know, a lot of our goals and who we think is appropriate for OIT, they again come from what the family's expectations are and ideally they should be hooked in with some form of allergist uh, being, that is evaluating and testing their food allergies because we, we will not start OIT unless we have a formal diagnosis of a food allergy. It's not right for the families, it's not right for the patients to go undergo this whole process for something that may or may not be a true food allergy. So they come in, they see us, we need to confirm that that allergy actually exists. And that could either be through skin or blood testing, or in some cases it could be an oral food challenge. I'll give you an example, very frequently, We see kids come in and their testing is borderline. They could have the food allergy, they could not. The history was a long time ago. Their blood testing and skin testing may be inconclusive. And so a lot of times in those kids, we'll either do a oral food challenge to help diagnose whether or not they have that food allergy. And then we'll also at times flip that oral food challenge into an oral immunotherapy initial escalation visit. So we can sort of get both of those taken care of at the same time. But that helps us make sure that we're only doing this in kids who have a diagnosed food allergy. And as Krista was saying before, and as we've talked about, it is a time and intensive process. It is a huge commitment. It's like we talk about when we talk about allergen immunotherapy or allergen shots. It is regular, you have to be committed. It is taking the food and turning it into a medicine. It is no longer a food. And unfortunately, children or people who have food allergies, food is already, unfortunately again, medicalized for them. So it's something that we're just taking the next step in doing. Again, the other piece of this is, we only do oral immunotherapy, at least in our center at specific sites. So they have to be willing to come to those sites to do the oral immunotherapy. And other practices function the same way because it is considered a high-risk procedure because there is the chance for anaphylaxis um and yeah there's other criteria that we have like not doing it when they're sick making sure that there's enough vaccinations given and that the child little things like not exercising all these criteria that work with the child's daily schedule that'll help make sure that it's done safely
0: those are great points just you know thinking about seeing patients in the office and having that very initial discussion with them it great just anticipatory guidance for a general pediatrician to say hey you haven't had any regular allergy follow-up in years. We've just been giving you your EpiPen for your, you know, peanut allergy or whatever. You need to get back in with the allergist first. Versus, hey, I've been followed regularly. Okay, you have this. It's one of the available allergies for OIT. Let's go ahead and, you know, have you call to schedule for that. So I think that just gives us, even if all avenues lead to the same thing. It gives us a lot of good information that we can relay to parents in terms of what to expect. And when we do that initial referral.
1: We do have clinics from um, in Northern Kentucky all the way up to the Liberty location. So we do try to meet the patients where they're at for their treatments. Um, And one of the things leading back to when to refer or bring them in, um, we recently completed the food allergy community um, practice tool that talked about IgE-mediated food allergies. And one of the things that I, um, as a care coordinator, find very important is that, you know, avoid screening or doing excessive food allergy testing because it often has a poor predictive value and really refer them in to see an allergist so that we're not eliminating foods from their diet unnecessarily because that can impact their quality of life as well as their nutrition.
2: Yeah, the, the skin prick testing that we do has a very high negative predictive value, so it's very good at saying, no, you don't have a food allergy, whereas the blood test is so good now at being able to detect small amounts of antibody to any of the foods that we often quite frequently see false positives in that. And it's not to say that if a child isn't interested in doing anything or a family's not interested in uh, adding any additional management to their food allergy that the general pediatrician can't. Be managing the food allergy, they should be an active manager and partner in in their food allergy uh, diagnosis. But if they want to do take that next step and say, "Can we get over this? Is this something we have anymore? We are tired of avoiding it." That's when um, they should be seeing us.
0: Great. Moving, switching gears just a little bit on to you know we went through the process, the specific phases, but just thinking of going through um, the process of OIT, um, how many patients? have, and this is a little obscure as I'm saying it, I'm going, oh, this is tough, have significant reactions. Um, and maybe significant can be defined in many different ways. Significant meaning, you know, if my child's sitting in the office and is, maybe they're having their initial OIT and, you know, they break out in hives You know, obviously we all have the allergy action plans and we know kind of the chain of Benadryl to EpiPen too. But, you know, how many patients do you see have significant reactions? Maybe even just quantifying reactions versus how many require injections of epinephrine in clinic. Is that data that you guys feel comfortable that you have or...?
1: I mean, I, we did some of the, the data, and it was a low percentage. Um, I don't know that I'm prepared to say the exact that's percentage okay. <laughs> today, but it is a low percentage. Most of what we found is that patients may require, like you were mentioning, Benadryl or Zyrtec, um, but we are always prepared to give epinephrine if needed, and that's why we do it in the office, um, and that's why at home we encourage them to always have their EpiPen, because whether they're reacting to their uh, their daily dose or a different exposure, we want to make sure that they're safe at home as well. So their EpiPen should always be current, they should always be carrying it, um, even if they're desensitizing to their food allergen. Um, the other um, leading up to what you were saying is with this whole procedure, one of the things that we do have as exclusionary criteria is if they have, um, any history of uncontrolled asthma. We wanna make sure their asthma is well controlled before we would updose in the office or start that initial escalation. We also wanna make sure they don't have a history of eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE. And we also wanna make sure they're not on medications that would render the epi ineffective. So like, we don't want them on beta blockers if they're doing OIT, so. Sure.
0: Those, I think, are all great reminders. Um, do you find that previous, significant reactions requiring epinephrine, is that a negative predictor of success with OIT? So say, um, maybe I wasn't very clear on the way I asked that, but um, I, I think patient, I that, patient that's needed, say in the last year, had an exposure required, you know, went through Benadryl, Benadryl sorry, required um, epinephrine injection for their reaction. Um, is that a negative? prediction for
1: success of OIT? I've had patients in our, and that have had required epinephrine, have continued on with OIT and successfully reached their maintenance dose um, in our, in our um, patient population, our cohort. Um, I do know that you would like with medications or different providers may feel like there is, should be, if they've had a recent reaction, we may give their body time to recuperate their mast cells to, to well, what I'm looking for, but um, to, to get back to their baseline before we would start OIT. Yeah, that's great.
0: That makes perfect sense. So awesome.
2: And I do tell families when they come in that you should expect a reaction of some sort. Just to set that out there, based off the national literature, we know that most kids undergoing OIT will have some form of a reaction. Now, majority, almost all of those will be a minor reaction, maybe a hive, two hives, maybe a little stomach upset that comes up once and never comes up again. But I think it's just fair to the families to say it probably won't be a severe reaction, but you should know that this is likely to happen at some point during this process. And and maybe a little outside the scope of our discussion here, but theres there are anecdotally and i feel that we have talked about this i haven't seen this in the literature but there is some difference in the process for oit for the different foods so we know that peanut for example is a process that we have standardized and is very established and kids seem to go Fairly well through that program as do the tree nuts but when you get through some of the other foods that are less standardized nationally or internationally there seems to be some difficulty at times in how we approach those patients and get them through the process right through, through models that are based on what we've done for other foods Gotcha.
0: And this is a very specific question as I um, ask this but are there kind of a formulator, formulation for calculating specific doses to start with, and is that standard, or is it based on each individual patient in terms of maybe their skin prick testing results or previous blood level results?
1: Um, We have protocols that are very standardized for for the ones that we've written protocols for. So the doses are very standardized and we start with a very small amount. So for peanut, for instance, we start with 0.1 ml, which is one um, like 2,500th of a peanut. (laughs) So it's a very, very small amount. um, And we build up from there. um, And we base that off of We've we've monitored our outcomes and we found that that is um, where we're majority of our patients are able to make it to the final escalation dose exactly. for the peanut.
0: So not necessarily based on that previous or that individual patients testing results, whether it be you know blood work. We, we've or had some
1: patients that I've seen with their serum IG is greater than hundred and they've made it to maintenance of awesome. OIT. So it doesn't And some seem have like much lower numbers yeah. and may have more reactions throughout their process. Great. Would you agree? Definitely. Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. So, well, and I think that's nice. D- I didn't consider that at the beginning of this, but in learning from you guys, which I appreciate, you know, that there's enough data for some of the more common allergies to have such a good standardized process in place that, you know, as a parent, as well as a primary care physician, you can be confident that you know, is, is safe, right, and in a controlled environment. But I also love the point you made, um, Dr. Shirani, that you tell all your parents there will be a reaction. Just have that in your mind, right? Have that expectation, because I think if if you go in knowing that it makes it a lot easier and maybe a little less anxiety provoking. So, um, I'm giving you guys, and I, I feel bad about these questions because I feel like I'm giving you lots of detail, like which there isn't always a a great, perfect answer for these. But um, what percentage of patients, I know we talked about success rate, um, do you feel that the majority of patients not just gain success, but are able to complete the full process and get to maintenance phase?
1: That's what I was saying earlier about 11% of our patients do not make it through the process for different reasons. They could be they're having compliance issues at home because they've had a family emergency come up or they're having GI symptoms and they want to wait till maybe they're a little older or maybe they're in a better place with their daily life to do the OIT. Um, So I would say, though, the ones who have made it through, um, you know, there's, their stories are just phenomenal and you don't realize the impact you're having until you hear from them. Um and so I don't know if now's an okay time I was for say, me to say I'm share. gonna put you
0: on the spot, but yeah, if you have a okay. story to share that would be wonderful. So yeah,
1: so what we what we re- recognize as we were going through the process is that we, we were maybe not always addressing how things were going at home. So I worked closely with um, our provider and one of our psychologists here, and we created a tool here at Children's because we couldn't find one anywhere out there. And it looks at their, uh, their oral immunotherapy symptom at home. And so that way, when they come in, they fill out this questionnaire, and then we can say, wow, it's taking you 40 minutes to take your dose that's probably not conducive to quality of life. What can we do to help you um, maybe provide recipes that they hadn't thought of that they could utilize to introduce the dose? or um, changing up the way that they're, they're the timing of it, you know, um, there's different things that we can do to help mitigate that. And so with that, though, we've noticed that over time, the OIT, like I was saying earlier, when they come in for the visits, they're anxious in the beginning. But as they come each time, they get more and more comfortable, their anxiety level decreases. That would be what I would say would be the tangible thing that we see is that patients often express to us, they didn't realize the heavy weight they were carrying, and that when they their OIT, they were able to almost take a deep breath and realize their anxiety level has gone down. Their quality of life has improved. They're able to go do family functions as simple as going to a Reds game together as a family, which they never felt comfortable doing before the oral immunotherapy. And I know that it made me tear up to hear the mom say that. And and I see the look in your face that it is, it is very, um, you know, you don't realize the impact that you can have in a patient and family's lives, so. Absolutely.
2: I, I completely agree. I, I can't tell you how many families at the end of the process say, just, we're not afraid anymore. And it's so heartwarming to hear that. And I think if any anybody listening who's, who watched the Grand Rounds recently, for the hospital, there was a whole discussion on making sure that you address the mental health needs of the families. And I know I personally was not as good about that before starting this OIT process. And I think it's been a real eye-opener to see the huge quality of life impact, like Krista's been saying, um, and how it really lessens the family anxiety throughout this whole time. I, I
1: do think we have to be responsible here and say they should still always carry their EpiPen because there are things that can lower their immune system, maybe an illness they're not aware of they're, they're, uh, they're encountering or a stress because maybe they've encountered a stressor in their life um, that impacts their immune system. So um, I just really feel due diligence to say that too. Like, yes, it does give them that, that mitigation of decreasing their anxiety and fear, but that we do still educate them that they should always carry their epinephrine.
0: And hopefully they're in that habit Anyways, Anyways, but like you said, they can take just a deep breath and say, you don't have to always be on edge. So, um, I think that's great. Um, are there any specific tips or any advice you can give to general pediatricians on kind of how to support their patients? Maybe once they've reached, um, maintenance phase or completed OIT, um, kind of support them in that journey.
1: As a care coordinator, one of the things that I see is they still should be following up regularly, at least every six months to a year with their allergy provider when they're in their oral immunotherapy. Sometimes that's a little challenging to remind families the importance of that. It's one more visit, but it does help them to, to um, you know receive the appropriate follow-up as far as labs and skin testing and things like that. So that would be where I would say, encourage him to follow up regularly. So
0: just a little reminder, even when, you know, at our checkups, we always kind of ask what specialty providers have you seen in the last year? But, you know, sometimes they say none, but you know, it's good for me to remember that know if there's an, a food allergy listed, Oh, have you done your annual allergy follow-up? And even probably more important, obviously, with OIT, if they're in a maintenance phase to make sure that they're following regularly.
1: And one more thing I would say is if they're ill, like if you're treating them for an illness, just remind them they should be holding their oral immunotherapy dose.
0: And can you give just a little more detail about, because um, my next question that I'm anticipating from a parent would be, for how long? How
1: long is it safe to hold that maintenance dose? Um, It's safer to hold the maintenance dose when you're sick than to give it when you're, than to give the dose if you're sick. And we have ways to, to mitigate that. We actually have a protocol for how to address. Great. Um, So they, so I should remind them to look at their protocol they should have. (laughs) Yes.
0: No, that's great, but um, it's good to know. And when you say sick, is it? febrile illnesses? Is it minor colds that you have them hold it for?
1: Um, So we're currently creating an OIT action plan that will go to families, and that's something they could share with their pediatricians, too, to say this is what we are treating for and this is what they're recommending we hold our doses for. Um, And some of those symptoms are fever greater than 100.4, vomiting, diarrhea. Gotcha.
2: In in general, we say and at least I say it and all of the other other pros say, breaking it down simply is fever. Don't give it, and if they're not acting normally. So if they're afebrile and they're running around, even if they got a little sniffles or aren't 100% themselves, if they're acting more or less normal, you can go ahead and give the dose. But as Chris is saying, the protocol is important because the longer that you hold the dose for, the higher the chance of you have of reaction upon reintroduction.
1: So if they hold the dose greater than seven days, that's where I come into play as the (laughs) coordinator. And I help get you back into our office to safely (laughs) reintroduce. Yes, they can call our office and we will safely bring them in for a visit to reintroduce the dose. So it doesn't mean they have to stop OIT altogether. We will bring them in and find a safe dose to restart them. So maybe a
0: minor setback. Yeah. And less than that, generally, as long as the parents are following the protocol that they will be giving, generally safe to reintroduce at home?
1: Yeah. Usually if they've held it for more than three days, we reduce the dose by 50%. Okay. And then they build back up
2: from there. Gotcha. Similarly, I think late illnesses, vacations happen. (laughs) And one of the questions that I often get is what do I do when we go on vacation? And most of the time, people are able to bring whatever product they use at home with them on vacation. But let's say they're traveling internationally or to an area where they're going to be for a while. How do they develop the product? And that's where – or get the product. That's where we have a sit-down conversation of how long can you – are you going to be on vacation? Is it a day, two days where you should be taking your dose but for some reason you're not going to be able to like if you're on in the middle of the woods and don't have access to it? And then if they're in a country, can they go into another country that doesn't have it? Can they take some with them and can they bring enough of a supply? These are all sort of planning issues that, again, like the illness, they should contact us for.
1: And also think about, um, you know, that you have access to medical care. So if you have a reaction, so not sailing out in the middle of the ocean, you you would not to give your dose. (laughs) That was the other
0: thing I thought of. I'm like, oh, gosh, for short, things like that, maybe it is safer to hold just, you know, in case there's a reaction and you can't get somewhere
2: in families who I often get asked about long car drives, they'll drive 12 hours during the day and they're not going to be able to give it more than an hour before bedtime. What do we do in those situations? And a lot of times I'll just tell the family, hold the dose for that day, start it up the next day. Once you're on a more regular schedule.
0: So, um, I appreciate all this wonderful information. And I think it would be nice to wrap up our, our discussion we had talked a little bit about appropriate patients to refer and how for general pediatricians um, to support them through that process, but can you just touch a little bit on the actual process of referral? So if I send in a referral for a patient and you know the family is interested, they have let's say a peanut allergy and they're interested in OIT, how does that process take place um, from an allergy
1: end? So you would um, refer them for a new visit and at the time of the, um, the the scheduler will call out and at that time will ensure that they're scheduled with the OIT provider that treats that specific food allergy. Um, that food, that provider then would place an OIT referral and that referral would then go for authorization. And then once it's authorized, then someone would call your, your patient or family to schedule those appointments.
0: Great. So I think just important to note that you're, Annual allergy follow-up is not necessarily your initial OIT consult, too. So just for good, you know, info and guidance to, to and, tell the family what to
1: expect. And patients and families are expected to still follow up with their allergists, even if a different provider is giving the OIT treatment. It's very important.
2: Because not all providers who are allergists at our hospital do OIT. Gotcha. That's the distinction and not all al- allergists who do OIT, do OIT to all foods.
0: Great. Well, thank you both for being here today. I definitely learned a lot. Thank you for allowing me to share some of my personal interjections and personal story, um, and I just want to remind all our listeners, um, uh, that there will be CME available, um, linked to the podcast, as well as the, um community practice support tool for food allergy, for reference for all our um, general pediatricians' lessons. So thank you both. Thank Thank you you for having
1: us.